Hey, this morning, I'm going to share with you uh, out of the book uh, of, of Hebrews. Uh, many theologians believe today that although Hebrews is of unknown authorship from the text, they believe it was written by the Apostle Paul. And they do that through linguistic matching and the looking at different words and phrases, analogies and stories that are used, the way that people write their own narrative. They've compared it with some of the other Pauline epistles. And, and many have concluded today that although the book of Hebrews doesn't tell us exactly who wrote it, it was likely the Apostle Paul. And if it were the Apostle Paul, that would mean that the book of Hebrews is actually the fifth prison epistle that he writes. But it is unlike the other letters that he writes to churches while he is in Roman imprisonment awaiting his execution under the Emperor Nero. It's not written to a specific city like to Thessalonica in the book of Thessalonians or the city of Corinth in the book of Corinthians or the city of Coloss in the book of Colossians. The book of Hebrews is, is written to a general audience of Jewish believers all across the Roman Empire who are trying to figure out what it looks like to live a life of faith following Jesus in the midst of religious social, political, and ethnic persecution of their day. And in the midst of it, Paul writes a, a, a profound letter proving the faithfulness of God from Abraham forward and encouraging these believers to stay true to the upward call of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, this morning, the main text of my sermon is two verses long. I've got about 35 subtexts that will hit as well, but, but the main thrust of my sermon this morning is, is two verses long. It's Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 2. And I think maybe one of the tragedies of folks who have been raised in church is that if we've sat in Sunday services long enough, we begin to believe the lie that I've heard everything there is to hear. <laughs> and I've heard every sermon there, there has ever meant to be preached. And I've already figured it all out. And there's nothing new under the sun. So therefore, I kind of tune out as it pertains to my Sunday morning engagement. But the Bible says that the words of God are not cake for special occasions, but bread for daily consumption. It is not a dead text, but a living text. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It makes the person of God fully complete for the work of God that lays ahead of them. And in doing so, if you will plant yourself firmly in the house of God, open your ears to the word of God, your life will be transformed in the pursuit of God, and in doing so, what you will find is that nothing around you stays the same. I'm convinced we could take one or two verses, camp there for the next 10 years, and still not run out of new stuff that the Spirit of God would show us, because that's how good His Word is in our lives. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1, the Bible says this, therefore we also is since we are, are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, although Hebrews 12 is a distinct and separate chapter, it 
it represents a, a continuous thought that actually begins a chapter earlier. In chapter 11, the apostle Paul begins to retell the story of the faithfulness of God's people. He mentions heroes like Abel and Enoch, Noah and Abraham, Sarah and Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samson, David, and others. In total, Paul covers 2,000 years of Old Testament history in the context of 40 verses. And the overarching theme of this passage is by faith they overcame. By faith they understood. By faith they offered sacrifices. By faith they did not see death. By faith they conquered cities. By faith they crossed the Red Sea. By faith they overcame... Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then Paul begins in chapter 12, a different chapter, but the same thought. And he says, now in light of this great testimony of faithfulness, in light of 2,000 years of God saving and restoring his people, in light of God never failing, even in the midst of the most desperate of circumstances, let us remind ourselves we are still surrounded by their great testimony, so let us throw off every hindrance, lay aside every weight and sin, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Friend, it is the stories of what God has done that give us great faith for the things that he has yet to do. And do you know what Easter Sunday represented to me? If God filled that stadium, he gonna fill the next one. If God saved that family, he gonna save the next one. If God healed that person, he gonna heal the next one. For the best indicator of God's future success is his past performance. See, the enemy wants you to have a short-term memory on God's faithfulness and a long-term memory on man's limitations. And friend, I'm here to tell you this morning, you won't make it where God wants to take you unless you begin to retell the stories of the great things that he has done. It's why Moses says, do not forget it is the Lord your God who gives you the power to gain wealth. It's why David says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. It's why the scripture says, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. So let the redeemed of the Lord say so. One translation says it like this. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. It's interesting the word that Paul uses in verse 1. He says, we are surrounded. See, that word surrounded in the Greek, it literally meant to be clothed with. See, Paul is saying, as a believer, you are clothed with the testimony of those who have come before, which means I'm not reading the Bible as a mere historical record, but instead as a living text. The same God that they had back then is the same one that we have today. And if you use folks like Jacob the deceiver, Moses the murderer, David the disobedient, and Samson the immoral, then there ain't one person too far gone that he can't use today. 
Now you know that you aren't born with clothing on. And in fact, you aren't even born with the desire to even wear clothing. And if you don't believe me, have children. They're always running around in different states of undress, not yet understanding the social norms of the cultures we live in. I am constantly finding myself telling my children to do things that I never thought I would have to instruct another human to do. Please don't play in the toilet. Please don't eat trash off the floor. Please don't immediately dump the contents of your dinner all over yourself. Please keep your clothes on for Sunday school. I came downstairs the other day and my three-year-old was wearing my boots. I said, Reagan, why are you wearing dad's boots? And she said, because I'm going to work with dad today, so I had to dress like you. Here's the problem. If you live an unintentional Christian life, you'll allow the culture to dress you up in stuff that was never designed for you to wear. You'll be like David, running around in Saul's armor, unable to walk straight because it was never intended for you to carry. See, when you're born again, the Bible says in Psalms 132, you are clothed with salvation. In Psalms 30, it says you are clothed with gladness. In 1 Peter 5, it says you is clothed with humility. In Revelation 19, it says you is clothed with righteousness. And in Colossians 3, it says you are clothed with Christ. And finally, the instruction of the Apostle Paul is you now clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, gentleness, and patience. <laughs> When I was in college in the year 2002, I signed up for a math class against my better judgment that began at 7 a.m. Now, I'm not normally a morning person, but when it involves math, I literally would rather be doing anything else. <clears throat> I was always late for this class, and the teacher I had wouldn't accept homework even if it was a minute late. And so I figured something out. If I would just sleep in the clothes that I intended to wear the following morning, I could sleep in a few extra minutes later and still have a shot at making it on time. And so for an entire quarter of my college career, that is exactly what I did. And by the time that I finished fall quarter of 2002 at Shoreline Community College, I had barely passed that class with a .7 GPA. Now, I don't know if you know how GPAs work, but it's not like golf. It's not like the lower the number, the better. A .7 is a D minus. This gal passed me just so she would never have to see me again. Not only did I get a .7 in math, I got a 1.0 in elementary Spanish, but I got a 3.6 in drama 101, so I became a preacher. But here's the reality. Some of us 
have grown so tired in our faith or so lackadaisical in our development that instead of enduring the discipline to clothe ourselves daily, we end up going to sleep in whatever the world has placed on our shoulders and we wake up the next day looking, smelling, and acting like what God has rescued us from. And unless you are intentional about accessing the new wardrobe that God has provided, you'll be living in the kingdom yet end up feeling just as oppressed as you were before. You know, when I wake up in the morning, I tell myself, Russell, today you are saved. Today you are glad. Today you are humble. Today you are righteous. Today, you are compassionate, kind, gentle, and patient. I am reminding myself, Russell, God has exchanged your grave clothes for something so much better. See, friend, the most important person that you will ever prophesy to is yourself. This is who God says I am. This is what God says I can do. And this is the type of person with God's help that I am becoming. In Mark 5, when the demoniac is set free, the Bible says he goes from naked and bleeding to clothed and in his right mind. In John 11, when Lazarus is raised from the dead, the first thing that Jesus says is unwrap those grave clothes. In Matthew 22, Jesus warns us about showing up to the wedding banquet of the Lamb in the wrong wardrobe. See, in Scripture, clothing didn't just represent a natural thing. It often represented a spiritual thing. For what you are clothed in speaks to the identity of your inner man. And friend, you've got a responsibility to get dressed in your righteous robes because there is a culture worth saving. There is a region worth reaching. And we still have a God worth praising. So watch what Paul says. We are clothed with a testimony. So let us throw off or lay aside every weight and every sin and run our race with endurance. It is interesting to me that term throw off because it's actually used quite often by New Testament authors. Romans 13 and 12, throw off the works of darkness. Ephesians 4 and 22, throw off the old man. Ephesians 4 and 25, throw off falsehood. Colossians 3 and 8, throw off anger, wrath, and obscene talk. James 1, throw off rampant wickedness. 1 Peter 2, throw off malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And here's the reality, either you will throw off the works of darkness or the works of darkness will throw off you. See, Paul actually identifies two categories of caution. The first is weight, and the second is sin. If both of these things, if unaddressed, will ultimately compromise your ability to run your race. See, that word weight, it means burden, hindrance, or encumbrance. 
Paul, when addressing the church in Corinth on the topic of Christian liberty, he says, all things are lawful, but not everything is beneficial. Meaning this, I have made choices about my present that are helping set up and secure my future. You can leave this church today, go home and eat the cat litter for lunch. I don't think it's against the law, but it's probably not helpful as it pertains to your future. See, immaturity asks, can I do it? But maturity asks, should I do it? Adolescence says, show me the law that says I can't. But adulthood says, show me the value this will add to my life. See, it's not the church's job or the pastor's job to outline some strict moralistic code to micromanage every little decision of your life. Oh, that sounds both terrible and exhausting. But it is our job as believers to grow up in the Lord, mature in our faith, and develop in our spirit. The most difficult spirit that we battle in the earth today is the spirit of dumb. And for whatever reason, it even seems to possess believers at times. And nothing makes your race more difficult than unforced errors that contribute unnecessary weight to an already difficult race. I don't understand why people pay to run in the Northwest. It makes absolutely zero sense to me. Don't ever ask me to do a 5K, a 10K, a 1K. I have no interest. I get tired driving. Can you imagine me running? But there is one thing I've noticed. When these marathon people sign up for these races, they are wearing the bare minimum. They are carrying the bare minimum because any additional weight runs the risk of slowing them down. I would venture to say today, there is stuff we all got that God by His grace is working on. Stuff we thought we needed that we don't actually need. Relationships we thought we couldn't survive without that we actually can. Mindsets, behaviors, and patterns that God in his own way and in his own timing is offloading from our backs so we can better run our race. And you know what? Sometimes you don't realize how heavy the weight is until one day it lifts off of you. And that's just verse 1. And watch what Paul says in verse 2. Looking unto Jesus. One translation says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he has sat down triumphantly at the right hand of the throne of God. You gotta see this, friend. As a believer, you got a threefold responsibility in your relationship with God. Number one, you gotta lay stuff down. Number two, you gotta run with endurance. But number three, 
you got to fix your gaze. See, it's not just about running. It's about the endurance to keep going when others quit around you. Now, you probably already know this, but the Olympics is the longest standing sports tradition in human history. Its roots go back to the 8th century BC, 800 years before Christ, where runners would compete for prizes in the ancient Greek city of Olympia. But this week in my research, I, I found something so interesting. In the ancient games, there was a relay race where the runners were tasked with carrying a lit torch. They would run a lap, and then they would pass the torch to the next runner who would do the same until the entire team was finished. But see, this race was unique. In this race, the prize was not awarded to the team who finished first, but instead the team who finished with their torch still lit. Friend, your direction, your diligence, and your endurance is more important than your speed. Your job is to keep the torch burning bright, and after you've run your race, to hand it off to the next generation who will run further than you. This is how we win. In a world where people are burned out, given up on God, and fallen apart, we have kept the faith, we have run with endurance, we have finished the race, and we have burned bright the entire time. And what impresses me about pursuit is not our speed, it's our flame. And what does it mean to fix your eyes? Get this. That phrase translates to this definition. To look away from everything else in order to fix your eyes on one thing. See, when my wife and I got married, we stood on the stage of the church that I grew up in in Seattle, and I was asked these questions. Do you, Russell Johnson, take Maria Kuzmanak to be your lawfully wedded wife, to live together after God's ordinance in the holy estate of matrimony? Will you love her, comfort her, honor and keep her? Will you cherish her and continually bestow upon her your heart's deepest devotion, forsaking all others, keeping yourself only unto her as long as you both shall live? See, in marriage, we recognize that the choice for someone in covenant is also a choice against everyone else who is outside of that covenant, meaning this. We don't have an open marriage. We don't have a plural marriage. We don't have a non-monogamous marriage. We don't have a what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas marriage. We have a Christian marriage. My choice for Maria 13 years ago was simultaneously a choice against every other option. Now let me be honest. Marriage did not mean that on our wedding day, every other person on the planet immediately became unattractive. Marriage did not mean 
that on our wedding day, all sexual temptations ceased to exist. What marriage did mean is that on our wedding day, we made a choice. I am choosing to look at you. I am choosing to keep looking at you. I am choosing to look away from everything else, not because this will always be easy and not because I won't ever be tempted, but because covenant demands that I am intentional about fixing my gaze. Because if I'm not, I will end up trading the beauty of one thing for the tyranny of many things and end up bankrupt in my mind, body, and soul. No, don't gain the world and lose your soul. Don't climb the ladder of influence and lose your faith. Don't build your resume at the expense of your convictions. There is something more valuable than accumulating the accolades of a world that is fading away and it is having your name written in the Lamb's book of life. Oh, I know it's tempting to look away. I know it's convenient to lean on our own understanding. I know the grass always seems greener on the other side, but friend, it's greener where you water it and if you'll just stay planted in the right soil, watered by the right stuff, surrounded by the right people, fixing your eyes on the right God, I promise you will finish better than you started and you'll be glad that you never gave up. Let me end with this story. When we planted Pursuit eight years ago, I became consumed with a vision to build a church that existed to glorify Jesus, and in doing so, bring people into an encounter with His presence. And this has been the craziest story that I've ever been a part of. This is the house we sold in North Everett eight years ago to fund the church plant. It represented the only equity and the only money my wife and I ever had. This is the barn where we held our first service. And those are the hay bales we sat on when we couldn't afford chairs. And this is the pest control job I worked to put food on the table for the first three years of pursuit when the church couldn't afford to pay me. In those days, I preached sermons in crawl spaces to the most captive audience you could ever imagine. Rats and raccoons that were dearly departed souls because of my work. And this was my first billboard at our little church on Cedar Avenue. Our Sundays are better than Dairy Queen, 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. And these were our first altar calls at that little church. And that was my boy Matthew at three years old. We made a commitment in that moment, we will raise our kids in revival. I never in my wildest dreams imagined it would turn into this. 
but the God we serve. To the God who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, more than we could have ever asked, thought, or imagined, be all glory in the church and throughout all generations, both now and forever. In the same way that Paul wrote Hebrews 12 back then, to the faithful Jewish converts in the first century, reminding them to run with endurance because they are surrounded by the great cloud of testimony of those who have come before. I am here to tell you today that one day our children's children will run with endurance because of the great cloud of testimony that is in this room. I was there when God did it. I was there and I saw it. I got to be a part when God reawakened a region, when God sent revival to the Northwest. And one day you will be glad that with the cross before you and the world behind you, there was no turning back and no giving up. So let us lay aside every weight and every sin which so easily ensnares. Let us fix our eyes on this Jesus who endured the cross, despised the shame, and for the joy that was set before him is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Because of that God that we serve, let us commit in this moment that endurance is not just the activity of a weekend event at a stadium. It is the core characteristic of a revival people. We are not just burning bright. We're going to burn and allow that torch to be passed to the next generation until the testimony of what God does in this region gives courage to a generation of people for our ceiling to become their floor. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud, let us run. Come on, let me pray for you, Father, in the mighty name of Jesus. I pray for my friends across this room and those who are watching online from around the world. And God, I pray that in this moment, you would fill us with supernatural courage and faith for the journey that lies ahead. God, I thank you that what we have seen so far is simply a warm-up act for what you're about to do next. God, I pray that the commitment of our heart and the foundation of our faith 
would be deep, it would be strong, and it would be sturdy to outlast the wind and the waves of the world around us. Oh God, I pray that you would give us a great endurance, that you would give us a great diligence, that we would take the opportunity this morning to remind ourselves of who you say that we are, that we would be clothed in the robes that have been dipped in blood, that we would be clothed with Christ and his righteousness, that we would be clothed with humility and patience and kindness, and that whatever we do, we would not lose our gaze, for there is one thing that we have sought, and there is one thing that we have desired. It's to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our life, to inquire in your temple in our time of trouble, that you would hide us under your pavilion, that we would see your beauty. Oh God, we commit to keep eyes on you. And you would, if you would give us strength for the days that are ahead, we would commit in both big ways and small ways that if you will be our God, we will be your people. Do your best work in us. In Jesus' name, come on, all God's people said amen and amen.